Hello and welcome to News Hour from the BBC World Service. We're coming to you live from London. I'm James Menendez and we're going to bring you straight up to date with a story that's been unfolding for the past hour or so in southwest France. In the past few minutes, it's been confirmed that police have shot dead a gunman suspected of having killed at least three people. Uh, here's Hugh Schofield, our Paris correspondent. Well, I think it's over. It looks like it's over. Um, the, the headlines that are just appearing now flashed up on French media is uh, assault, uh, authorised, suspect, killed. Uh, and that is confirmed on AFP, the news agency. So it looks like it's true. But that, that's li- really in the last few minutes this has happened. In other words, what was predictable has taken place. The, the uh, security services do not hang around in these situations. Um, they, the orders are when there's a, a, a radicalised Islamist uh, terrorist hostage taker, um, you don't talk, you, you move in. Uh, and they've moved in, it seems, and, um, and killed him. He, I understand, had... Uh, one hostage uh, who it's reported was a gendarme, a member, a member of the gendarmerie. So uh, we don't know the details of what, what's happened, uh, but it does seem like it's now over, bringing to an end a uh, spree in which three people were killed. Um, there were three separate incidents, in effect. There was, first of all, when he shot at some CRS police who were out jogging in civ- civilian clothes, wounding one of them. He then hijacked a car and killed the passenger of that car, injured the driver, took the car and went to the supermarket and then again opened fire, shouting, I'm a soldier of Daesh, Islamic State, so-called, and killed two people there. And at which point um, he either everyone (coughs) rushed out and escaped or whether he took some hostages and let them go and kept one, it's not clear. But there was one remaining at the end and then the assault was given by the... um, by the uh, special forces around the building, who, of course, surrounded it two, two, two hours or so, three hours after it started, and the man apparently is now dead. Uh, and do we, briefly, do we know uh, anything more about him, where he's from? Is he French, uh, or, or is he from uh, abroad? We, Moroccan origin, but that doesn't mean that he's not French. I mean, and it probably, I would guess, from that area. Uh, he seemed to know the lay of the land. He certainly knew that there would be CRS police out jogging at that pos- place, um, um, so I would say probably a local man, certainly known to the French security services, uh, who'd marked him down as someone who's a, a radical. We don't know what level of watch list he was on. And we know that he asked for the release of Salah Abdeslam. That's the member uh, or the supporter of a so-called Islamic State, who was the lone survivor of the Paris attacks in 2015. That was uh, the BBC's Hugh Schofield uh, just bringing us up to date uh, from Paris. Uh, Of course, as uh, we get more details on on what exactly happened and the identity uh, of the government, we will bring you those uh, throughout the programme. But let's turn to Washington now and the latest change of the top levels of the Trump administration. The president has sacked his national security adviser, General H.R. McMaster, and in his place appointed the hawkish veteran diplomat John Bolton. You remember that he served as ambassador to the UN under George W. Bush. Well, it's prompted a mixed reaction around the world. Praise from Israel, for example, but concern in South Korea and condemnation from Iran. Well, in the past, Mr Bolton's been a strong advocate against uh, both North Korea and Iran, favouring um, military action. Well, here's a flavour of his uh, previous uh, pronouncements. My policy is pro-American. Uh, certainly, I welcome allies uh, whenever it's possible to have them. But I define protecting American interests to be the highest value and welcome allies to join with that. I don't define the ends by the coalition that can be assembled. 
So the United States is on to Iran's game. The fact is, I don't believe they have ever given up their desire to have a deliverable nuclear weapon. This deal is a sham. It's a danger to the United States, to Israel, to our Arab friends in the Middle East. The sooner we get rid of it, the better. I think this is potentially a meeting that begins and ends with the president saying, tell me what you're going to do to denuclearize. And Kim Jong-un saying, well, we'll have talks about this and mm -hmm. talks about that. So it could be a long and unproductive meeting or it could be a short and unproductive meeting. If Kim Jong-un comes in and says, you know, I've seen the error of my ways. I'm going to renounce my uh, leadership in North Korea, go live in a villa on the seashore in China for the rest of my life, and the regime can get on without me. Uh, that would be historic, but unlikely. John Bolton. Well, let's uh, take a closer look at Iran and what uh, Mr. Bolton's appointment might mean for the nuclear deal. Struck in 2015 between Tehran and six world powers, it lifted many economic sanctions in return for tight controls over Iran's nuclear energy program. Well, for an idea of how the imminent arrival of Mr. Bolton in the White House has been received by the establishment, I've been speaking to Barbara Slavin, uh, director of the Future of Iran Initiative at the Atlantic Council, a think tank in Washington. Well, it's uh, causing a great deal of consternation <laughs> in Washington uh, this morning. Let's let's just say that. Um, he, uh, as you have rightly shown with your clips, has been a strong opponent of the nuclear agreement, which was anyway hanging by a thread. President Trump has demanded that the Europeans agree to a variety of new sanctions on Iran and new understandings on Iran. Otherwise, he has already threatened that he will pull out of the deal uh, in May. And now we have kind of a double whammy uh, with uh, John Bolton coming in as national security advisor and uh, Mike Pompeo, also a very hawkish individual, coming in as secretary of state. It's really hard to see how this agreement survives. Uh, and what will that mean then if it is scrapped by America, or at least if America pulls out? It's really going to be up to the Europeans, to the Russians, the Chinese and the Iranians, whether they will try to somehow maintain this agreement absent the United States. Um, you know, the Europeans uh, have said, certainly the EU has said that they will try to maintain the agreement. Uh, so the question then then turns to Iran. What will the Iranians do? Uh, and we've seen different kinds of statements coming from the Iranians. President Hassan Rouhani has said that he would stay in the agreement. But one of the chief negotiators, a deputy foreign minister, Aragchi, has said that if the U.S. leaves, Iran would leave. I think what would be likely would be that the Iranians would begin to uh, do things that would be provocative. For example, perhaps they would resume uranium enrichment at an underground facility at Fordo, or they would start installing more advanced centrifuges. Uh, they would argue that, well, they can do this because the United States is the first to, to pull out of the agreement. And then they would essentially dare the international community to act. So then we will see if uh, John Bolton's military prescriptions are the ones that the United States would go for. I don't see how the U.S. will be able to restore the kind of unanimity over sanctions that helped bring Iran to the table in 2013, 2012. So it, we're going to face most likely another nuclear crisis, a crisis uh, over Iran as well as a crisis over North Korea. What sort of military action has John Bolton proposed over Iran <laughs> in the past? I mean, is, is it using perhaps Israel to carry out a bombing of suspected nuclear sites? Well, I think he would support that. I think he would support the United States bombing Iran's facilities. I mean, these are the things that he said. Now, of course, it's one thing to say these things when you're a commentator on Fox News 
and another thing if you are actually in a position of power and authority. So, uh, you know, he will be occupying a very senior position in the Trump administration. Uh, there are still a few other voices that could act as a check on him. I'm thinking of our defense secretary, uh, Mattis, uh, who is much more prudent in terms of the use of military force. And of course, Donald Trump himself. I mean, let's not forget these decisions come down to Donald Trump. It doesn't really matter who is in his cabinet, he has shown that he will shuffle these people like a deck of cards. If he is really seeking a military confrontation with both Iran and North Korea, the responsibility is his. What sort of uh, man is John Bolton? John Bolton is a very intelligent individual. He's been a very effective bureaucratic infighter. Uh, he has made many enemies uh, among uh, career civil servants in Washington. The famous uh, comment about him was made by uh, a gentleman named Carl Ford, who headed the State Department's intelligence and research branch. This was the lone uh, part of the U.S. government that said that Iraq did not have weapons of mass destruction back in 2002, 2003. Uh, of course, John Bolton was a strong proponent of the Iraq War. Carl Ford testified about John Bolton when he was when John Bolton was nominated to be UN ambassador in the second Bush term and Ford said that Bolton was the quintessential kiss up kick down guy namely someone who was very good at flattering his superiors and who could be extremely uh, unpleasant and brutal in his treatment of subordinates so he is someone uh, who creates a lot of fear and consternation and uh, we will have to see, frankly, uh, who in the National Security Council will remain under John Bolton. McMaster had brought in some uh, fairly seasoned and experienced people replacing the ideologues that had been chosen by Mike Flynn, the first national security advisor. So will these, uh, these individuals stay? How will Bolton treat them? Will he behave better uh, or will he uh, retreat to form? And that was Barbara Slavin in Washington, also author of the book Bitter Friends, Bosom Enemies, Iran, the US and the Twisted Path to Confrontation. Well, H.R. McMaster's firing and the hiring of John Bolton is but the latest in a long series of staffing changes in the White House, just 14 months since President Trump took office. A little earlier, I asked our Washington correspondent, Anthony Zerker, whether John Bolton had many friends left. He does. I mean, obviously, they're being drowned out by the howls of criticism that we're hearing. Uh, he was a uh, and is a very controversial figure. But people like uh, South Carolina Republican Senator Lindsey Graham says this is a good pick, uh, a veteran hand with a lot of experience. You're also hearing from people, activists like Pamela Geller. He's, she's a fierce anti-Muslim activist who's warned about creeping Sharia law in the U.S. And, and Bolton actually wrote the foreword to one of her books. She's very pleased with uh, the pick. But, you know, it doesn't really matter what people think about this because Bolton is an executive appointment. He's not going to need congressional confirmation. Donald Trump can pretty much put uh, whoever he wants in that spot. Is it normal for so many top posts to change hands so early on in a presidency? I mean, there's barely anyone left from the original lineup, <laughs> is there? Yeah, I, the, the short answer is no, it's not normal. Uh, this is uh, unprecedented in, in modern U.S. presidencies. I mean, if you remember back at the beginning of this month, Donald Trump tweeted out that he still had a few changes he wanted to make, but there was no chaos, only great energy. Well, since then, Gary Cohen, the economic advisor, uh, was is out. Rex Tillerson, the secretary of state, is out, and now H.R. McMaster. Uh, Brookings did a, a study uh, at the, the one-year anniversary of Trump's presidency, and it was 34 percent of the most senior staffers had switched jobs or 
are left. That number's up to 43% now. By contrast, Obama's first year was 7%. George Bush's was 6%. You know, Trump has had five communications directors, two chiefs of staff, two secretaries of state, two health secretaries. He's going to be on his net third national security advisor. And part of this is, uh, you know, he's a novice politician trying to find the right fit. But part of it could just be Donald Trump's management style. Uh, one other resignation uh, on Thursday, John Dowd, Trump's uh, lead lawyer, which ties into the whole uh, Russia investigation. Tell us a bit more about that. Uh, right. John Dowd had been Donald Trump's lead personal lawyer since the summer of last year. Uh, and this was uh, another change in in personnel that Trump had originally refuted. But here we are. Dowd it's dealing with the Mueller investigation. And the reason he resigned was reportedly because Donald Trump had stopped taking his advice. And that was the BBC's uh, Anthony Zerka uh, speaking to me from Washington. You're listening to NewsHour from the BBC World Service. Our top headline here on News Out Today. In France, police have shot dead a gunman suspected of having killed at least three people. The man had opened fire on police and hijacked a car, killing one person. He then barricaded himself in a supermarket in the town of Trèbes, where he killed two people. Uh, he had claimed allegiance to so-called uh, Islamic State. Also today, the EU has backed Britain's position on the Salisbury spy poisoning and recalled its ambassador from Moscow, prompting an angry reaction from Russia. And coming up later on the programme, a famous writer of spy novels tells us how etiquette among spies isn't what it used to be. It was always accepted that we did not target for contract killings foreign intelligence agents, nor did they do ours. More from uh, Frederick Forsyth in about 20 minutes' time. You're listening to NewsHour from the BBC with James Menendez. Now, despite claims of a local truce in eastern Ghouta in Syria, there are reports that 40 civilians sheltering in a basement have been killed by Russian airstrikes. It's yet another reminder that civilians, including many children, are bearing the brunt of the violence between government troops and their proxies and the various rebel factions. The BBC's Caroline Hawley has been to meet one young victim of the war, seven-year-old Mustafa, whose home was hit by a barrel bomb in 2014, just an hour before the family was planning to flee for safety in Jordan. In the suburbs of Amman, a group of children help their friend Mustafa onto the school bus. He flashes me a cheeky smile as they set off. As the school bell rings, he limps upstairs to class. One, two, Mustafa's really enthusiastic and all the teachers adore him and they say his classmates love him too. He's quick to put his hand up, his good hand, because his left hand barely works at all. A blue bus. Excellent. Mustafa was injured when a barrel bomb hit his family home near Aleppo four years ago. It killed his parents, broke both of his hips cracked his skull and lodged a piece of shrapnel in his brain, causing him severe nerve damage and partial paralysis down his left side. This is now a kind of free-form PE session on a scruffy patch of concrete and Mustafa is here running around, his left leg dragging as he goes. But what's incredibly impressive is the way he keeps going 
trying to keep up with his classmates, trying to run with the boys, and then when it doesn't work, sitting down in a circle with the girls. Back home, Mustafa arrives in the building which houses widows and orphans of Syria's war. The first person he looks for is his grandmother Fadila. She gently washes his feet. One of his legs is now longer than the other because of his injuries. It's so hard for him to move, she needs to dress as well as bathe him. She worries endlessly about him and his little sister Dua. Every night as I lie down next to them, I look at them and think what will become of them when I die. That's why I want to be resettled abroad. Maybe Mustafa could be operated on. When I cry, he tells me, don't cry, my father is in heaven, don't cry. I am a big boy now, and in the future, I will take care of you and my sister. Daddy is in heaven. Fadila shows me a picture of Mustafa's dad, Ibrahim, her youngest son, a good-looking man who, she says, was so like Mustafa. Last year, when I came to see Mustafa, he remembered his parents tucking him up in bed at night. But now that memory's gone. He only seems to know what his grandmother has told him of the night Ibrahim died trying to save Mustafa. He threw him to the ground. He was scared for him. He didn't worry about his own life. He was scared for his son. He threw him clear. When he saw the fighter jet, he threw him clear. He was carrying me. He was afraid for me. He put me down. He died and I was hurt. Once a week, Mustafa comes for physiotherapy. She's trying to get him to clap his hands together. It's really hard for him, but Mustafa never complains. He's a very determined little boy, isn't he? Yeah. And everyone falls in love with him. Yeah, yeah, he's a brilliant boy. He's a very good boy, and uh, he has a very bad story. Shada Hamasha, the physio, like everyone who meets Mustafa, has fallen for him. No dad, no, no mother. He, he called me some, sometimes, Mom, you are my mom. Can you be my mom? I love him. I treat him as, a, as he's my son, not like another patient. He's really my son. I treat him this way because he needs it. He needs it emotionally. Mustafa desperately needs more treatment. I've visited him for three years now, and physically, life is as much a challenge as ever. But when I ask him what makes him feel angry or sad... His answer, again with that smile, is nothing. Seven-year-old Mustafa talking there to Caroline Hawley. Campaigning ends today in Egypt ahead of presidential elections starting on Monday. The incumbent, uh, President Sisi, is running virtually unopposed. All media coverage has to end tonight. Well, to get an update, uh, I've been speaking to Sally Nabil, the BBC's correspondent in Cairo. So is this a genuine election or a coronation? It's more of a referendum. This is the way many people here in Egypt see it, even those who support the president. Because I've been talking to people, whether normal people or opposition figures or human rights campaigners, and all of them, although they have different views, but they do agree on one thing, that 
president Sisi's victory is certain and there is no competition whatsoever in this election. Some people even started talking about how his next term would look like, how the next four years would look like, whether he would ease up a bit of the severe restrictions imposed on freedom of speech and freedom of expression in this country. So the fact that he's going to win is unnegotiable. And some people saying, some opposition figures told me that this election brought us back to the Mubarak era, the former Egyptian president who was overthrown by the revolution. It's more of a referendum, more or less. Uh, and when you say referendum, in what way? Because it'll it'll turn on, what, turnout or... You know, presumably if he's the only candidate, he'll get all the votes, won't he? The critical issue here is the turnout, whether people would go to the polling stations to vote in these elections or not. This is an, a significant thing because it would reflect in, in a way or another how many people still believe in the credibility of this voting process. Has there been any uh, debate, real debate, leading up to the vote? Has there been pretty strong censorship of the press, for example? Actually, there hasn't been a debate. There has been only one interview that the president gave over the past couple of days. And he said one interesting line that he wished that he was challenged by one or two or even 10 competitors. But he said, we are not ready yet. And he didn't elaborate on that. that. He didn't say we are not ready on for what, really? Is Egypt not ready for democracy yet? He didn't elaborate. But he said that there are more than 100 parties in Egypt and no party managed to put forward a credible, strong candidate. And he wished that these parties would really manage to present a credible and a strong competitor, but that is not the case and he has nothing to do with the fact that he is facing almost no competition in in this election. But when you take uh, this statement to an opposition leader, for example, he would say that opposition parties have been continuously harassed by the security forces, their members have been arrested for a word they say on social media, and they have they have no room to appear on Egyptian media, whether state-run or private-run media, because the regime kind of fully controls television, radio channels, and newspapers in the country. So it's only the pro-Sisi voices that have the full chance in the Egyptian media, because the regime regime fully controls television, radio channels and newspapers in the country. So it's only the pro-Sisi voices that have the full chance in the Egyptian media. So if you do not have a chance to talk to people via the media, how will people manage to know about you? That was Sally Emile, uh, the BBC's correspondent in Cairo. You're listening to NewsHour. Stay with us. Much more to come in the next half hour of the programme. Hello, I'm Carrie Gracie, and until recently, I was the BBC's China editor. Well, I've got something really exciting to tell you. I'm now presenting The Real Story podcast. It's also made by the BBC World Service. We take a single topic in and around the news and we examine it in depth, one hour, one topic every week. The idea is to give important issues just that bit more space to breathe. So if you're looking for a slower look at our fast-changing world, search for The Real Story wherever you find your podcasts. 
Coming up next on NewsHour, we'll bring you more details on the attack in southwest France by a gunman pledging allegiance to so-called Islamic State. Uh, within the past half hour, he's been uh, shot dead by police. And we'll have more on the diplomatic moves after the poisoning of the former Russian double agent Sergei Skripal and his daughter Yulia. But before that, we're going to turn to Afghanistan, where there are allegations that Russia has been involved in supporting and funding the Taliban. Here's our South Asia correspondent, Justin Rowlatt. I'm flying over one of the most dangerous places on Earth. Currently we are uh, about 100 miles south of Bagram Air Base, heading uh, northeastbound. We're high above the snowy ISIS-infested mountains of northeastern Afghanistan. We're in a KC-135, what the American Air Force call a stratotanker. The tankers are the, uh, the backbone of the entire air campaign. So I got eyes on them. He's a stern. Lying in the belly of the plane, peering out through a window, I see the F-16 fighter jets, the Vipers, lining up to take on fuel. Sears look good, nice and stable. At 20,000 feet and 500 miles an hour, it's extraordinary that these wasp-like planes can dock so easily. All right, disconnect. Minutes later, a full load of fuel on board, and they're ready to get back into the fight providing air cover for Afghan forces battling insurgent fighters. But 17 years into this war and Russian interference is making the conflict even more complicated. According to General John Nicholson, the commander of US and NATO forces in Afghanistan. Well, what we have seen is destabilizing activity by the Russians. We see a, a narrative that's being used that grossly exaggerates the number of ISIS fighters here. This narrative then is used as a justification for the Russians to legitimize the actions of the Taliban and provide some degree of support. We've had stories written by the Taliban that have appeared in the media about financial support provided by the enemy. We've had weapons brought to this headquarters and given to us by Afghan leaders and said this was given by the Russians to the Taliban. We know that the Russians are involved. Russian involvement in Afghanistan certainly complicates the conflict and could even affect the prospects of ending the war here. Last month, the president of Afghanistan, Ashraf Ghani, made an unprecedented bid for peace, offering a wide-ranging and generous amnesty for Taliban leaders who join negotiations. But there has been no response yet. The Taliban have rejected such offers in the past and the fear is foreign meddling in Afghanistan is only likely to make peace in this fractured country even more elusive. That was Justin Rowlett reporting there from Afghanistan. You're listening to NewsHour with James Menendez, uh, live from the BBC here in London. Let's just uh, update you on that story, that unfolding story from uh, southwest France. Uh, French police have stormed a supermarket uh, in the town of Trèbes after a gunman uh, took a hostage or hostages. Uh, it started around mid-morning, ended at 3pm French time. Uh, reports say that a policeman took the place of one of the hostages uh, and left his uh, cell phone 
open during the operation so police outside could monitor what was going on. Uh, the gunman said to have been heavily armed. Uh, he was apparently demanding the release of Salah Abdeslam, the uh, most important surviving suspect in the November 2015 attacks in Paris, which killed 130 people. Uh, some reports say the suspect was known to French intelligence services. Uh, the government said that he was known to them, but just uh, for petty crime. Uh, the French President Emmanuel Macron has been speaking about the incident. Uh, he's in Brussels at the moment. The ongoing developments in France, indeed an attack, and um, hostage-taking operation are ongoing in our country, in the south of France, and everything leads us to believe that indeed it is a terror attack. Les forces de l'ordre, en particulier de la gendarmerie, sont intervenues de manière extrêmement rapide et coordonnée. coordinated manner. After what was first attack against police officers, please allow me to express our utmost support to all those addressing the situation. That was President Macron speaking about uh, 40 minutes ago. More details, of course, uh, as they come into us. The European Union has taken the rare step of recalling its ambassador to Russia following the nerve agent attack in Salisbury, ostensibly for consultations. This display of solidarity with Britain comes after EU leaders meeting at a summit in Brussels agreed it was highly likely that Moscow was responsible for the poisoning. Uh, This is what the British Prime Minister Theresa May had to say. I welcomed the uh, agreement last night from the EU Council uh, that they accepted, they agreed, the United Kingdom government's assessment that Russia, it was highly likely that Russia was responsible for the attempted murder that took place on the streets of Salisbury and that there was no plausible alternative explanation. Well, it was Salisbury, a quiet English cathedral city where Sergei Skripal, the former Russian double agent, and his daughter Yulia were poisoned on March the 4th. Uh, on Thursday, Detective Sergeant Nick Bailey, the police officer who, was, uh, who also became seriously ill after being exposed to the nerve agent, was discharged from hospital. Uh, his senior officer read out a statement on his behalf. People ask how I'm feeling. There are really no words to explain how I feel right now. Surreal is the word that keeps cropping up. And it really has been completely surreal. Uh, Sergei Skripal and his daughter are still in hospital. I've been getting the latest on their condition from the BBC's Duncan Kennedy, who's in Salisbury. The official position from the hospital, as of in the last few hours, is that they remain in a critical but stable condition. And that's been their position for the last 19 days, ever since this attack on Sunday the 4th of March. Separately, we've got a a slightly more of an insight into their condition from uh, a judge in London at the High Court who gave permission to the chemical weapons inspectors to take blood from the Skripals. Because they're unconscious, they can't give that permission themselves. And that judge, Mr Justice Williams, said that it's not inconceivable that their condition could rapidly deteriorate. And he also said that the precise effect of their exposure to this nerve agent on their long-term health remains unclear. So not a whole lot more information, um, but they are clearly getting the most intensive kind of treatment but officially it remains critical but stable. Uh, and just on that judge's uh, ruling, just remind us why uh, those blood tests uh, are, are happening. How does that fit into the investigation? Well, this was a request to the High Court in London by the Organisation for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, the, the independent chemical weapons experts who've come over to Britain to try to confirm what 
British scientists at the Porton Down Research Establishment concluded a couple of weeks ago that this nerve agent was Russian in origin. The experts from the OPCW want to do their own independent testing. So they had to apply to a judge to get blood samples taken from Sergei and Yulia because they are unconscious and not able to give that permission themselves. They want to test the blood for nerve agent and also to test their DNA. They also had to get legal permission to test uh, samples that the Porton Down scientists had taken. So they want to retest those themselves. Where and when they will do that, we don't know. One suspects that as with the samples of the nerve agent itself, they will be taken to a, a laboratory or laboratories outside of Britain just to bolster the independence of their investigation. Duncan Kennedy. Well, the response to the poisoning, the tit-for-tat expulsions of diplomats or intelligence agents posing as diplomats, has powerful echoes of the days of Cold War, espionage. They're also a reminder of the importance of human intelligence in an age in which, as we've seen this week, so much information is available online. And yet the spying games change beyond all recognition because of technology. Would, for example, the assassin from the novel and film The Day of the Jackal be able to evade police for days on end, leaving no trace? Well, we thought it would be fascinating to talk about some of this with two leading spy writers, Charles Cumming, whose latest novel The Man Between is out in a couple of months, and Jackal author Freddie Forsyth, also still busy with a new book after half a century. I asked Freddie first whether he thought back then that former spies would be being poisoned and diplomats expelled in 2018. No, I obviously didn't. Uh, But back then, we're talking a long time ago, the whole business of espionage was covered in secrecy. I think was a point where uh, our country didn't even recognise or admit that it had got a secret intelligence service at all. And then eventually it did, and then eventually it said it had a chief, and then eventually it named the chief, and so on. Nowadays, of course, they hold press conferences. But that wasn't always the case. So it was shrouded in mystery and secrecy back then. But if you're looking at the changes made, say, over the past 50 years, I think the biggest visible one is the incredible technology now used. I would suggest that probably 80 to perhaps 90% of intelligence gathering now is electronic. It's it's done by spies in the sky, by drones, uh, intercepting, listening, eavesdropping, bugging. These were once fairly unusual. You knew when you went to a, a, a Muscovite hotel room that it would be bugged. But a bug back then was the thing about the size of your thumb. Now you wouldn't even dream of seeing it. It's too technical. I mean, the days, I think, of the shady character with an upturned collar meeting another shady character in a dark alleyway somewhere in the back end of Czechoslovakia, those days are gone. Charles Cumming, what does that mean then for the modern spy fiction writer? I mean, tech's fascinating in a way, but it's not human drama. And, you know, for some, it can can be a bit boring. Yes, I think just as technology, say mobile phone technology, has made the business of spying, being an intelligence officer, more difficult because you can be followed, you can be listened to, you can be blown up by your mobile phone, number plate recognition technology on the roads, retinal scans as soon as you go into JFK. It's it's very difficult for a spy to operate under what used to be known as alias. Now, if I fall under suspicion, there's LinkedIn, there's Twitter, as, there's as Facebook. As we've been discovering this week, yeah. our digital footprint is, is, is exactly. everywhere, isn't yeah. it? So it's, it's, it's become very difficult for both intelligence officers and the bad guys to uh, to escape the attentions of the of the drones and the satellites that Freddie's talking about um, in terms of storytelling 
the drawback is that one always has to be conscious of, of this, particularly of phones. So, and it's difficult to isolate a character. You, somebody can always ring for help in a way that they couldn't do. The, the phone makes life difficult, but it also opens stories up and it makes stories move faster. And once you've got control of the technology, you can, you can have fun with it. Um, and it and it can generate suspense. Uh, Freddie, I came back to Day of the Jackal this week, uh, just coincidentally, and uh, and you know the narrative tension there is clearly in the pursuit, the chase, and none of what happens in that story would be possible now. I mean, they, they'd find him within minutes, wouldn't they? Yes, oh, yeah, absolutely. French counterintelligence would have him not only crossing the border, Dantemilia, uh, but uh, even before he even got there, they'd probably have checked out. Do you worry about the impact it, it has on, on spy fiction, the way the world's changed? Well, it's making it a bit dull because, frankly, a chap sitting at a computer keyboard tapping away is very unsexy. It doesn't have anything of the, of the romance of slipping through the Iron Curtain uh, to a secret rendezvous and picking up a package and then coming back again. That at least had a certain uh, sort of frisson to it. But um, if the, the, the agent on the other side can get the stuff he wishes to you through cyberspace... Well, there's not much to write about, is there? But I think the, the the people who work at SIS and MI5 would would disagree with that. They would say that the hament, the human side of, of intelligence work, is still vital. Oh, absolutely. No, a human, there are three, basically three sides. SIGINT, signal intelligence, meaning radio. ELINT, which is electronic. And HUMINT, which is human. A human, a human is still very, very important. For example, if you can get a, someone, an agent of yours, to penetrate to the very heart of the the enemy court, and then inform from there. That is, you know, that's worth all the drones in the world because he's sitting next to the tyrant, listening to him, and then going out and uh, telling you what's going on. The technology of transferring the stuff, that's that has changed. You don't need to meet anymore. And, of course, what you can put into one single memory stick is like 10 million documents. I think Edward Snowden got away with uh, leaving... Uh, Hawaii for Hong Kong with 10 million documents. Now, that used to be an entire convoy of trucks. Yeah. Now it's a single stick the size of your thumb, which you can put you nowhere. And just one final thought from Charles Cumming. Uh, just talking about the meat, it, it's human interaction, those sort of meetings that, that make for human drama and make for for good novels. So is it still possible to in- inject that into the modern spy Yes, novel? absolutely. I, 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 obviously, I, I would say that, wouldn't I? Because I write contemporary spy novels. But I really do believe it's still possible because it's still about the same thing. Am I going to get caught? Am I going to be followed? Am I being watched? Am, am I on the side of the angels or have I slipped over into the dark side? And that was Charles Cumming. I was also talking to uh, Freddie Forsyth. Uh, Let me tell you a little bit about our sister programme, The Real Story, this week. Uh, Carrie Grace has been looking at the war in Yemen, which is entering its fourth year. The war began with a Saudi-led coalition seeking to install a friendly government in Sana'a. But during three years of fighting, foreign powers have piled in. The country is now increasingly fragmented. Carrie Grace has been speaking to British journalist Iona Craig about how this breakup is harming the search for peace. Because of the protracted nature of the conflict, you've now got this very profitable war economy that has established itself across the country. And that means you've got individuals on both sides of the conflict, both inside Yemen and outside, who are making huge amounts of money out of this war. And of course, for them, their interest is to maintain the status quo. And that makes it incredibly difficult, therefore, to encourage those those individuals and those that have, are benefiting from the ongoing conflict to actually even think about a political resolution or political talks while there are so many millions of dollars to 
be made out of the conflict as it remains. That's uh, Iona Craig, part of the panel of experts on this week's uh, Real Story uh, with Carrie Gracie uh, this weekend, uh, live on air, but also downloadable as a podcast from wherever you get your uh, podcasts from. Uh, You're listening to News Hour from the BBC World Service. Do stay with us. Uh, We'll have more on John Bolton's appointment as National Security Advisor in the US and also an update from uh, southwest France on the situation there and what's been happening over the past few hours. Don't go away. A reminder of our main story today here on News. Our French police have shot dead a gunman who took hostages at a supermarket in the southern town of Trebe. The gunman, believed to be Moroccan or of Moroccan origin, pledged allegiance to so-called Islamic State. He's believed to have killed and wounded his victims in three separate incidents. Also, President Trump's choice of John Bolton as uh, new national security adviser has provoked some strong reactions worldwide. Barbara Slavin, a writer on Iranian affairs, told me that whatever Mr. Bolton might do, the buck would still stop with the president. Let's not forget, these decisions come down to Donald Trump. It doesn't really matter who is in his cabinet. He has shown that he will shuffle these people like a deck of cards. If he is really seeking a military confrontation with both Iran and North Korea, the responsibility is his. You're listening to News Out with James Menendez. Let's return now to one of our top stories, the replacement of General H.R. McMaster with John Bolton as the U.S. National Security Advisor. Corey Shackey served as the Director for Defence Strategy uh, on the National Security Council under President George W. Bush. That was in his first term. Uh, she's now Deputy Director General of the International Institute of Strategic Studies here in London. So what does John Bolton's appointment mean in terms of where U.S. foreign policy is now headed? My sense is the the president was irritated with being corralled into more traditional national security positions, that that's where the Secretary of State, the National Security Advisor, the Secretary of Defense, and even to some extent the Secretary of the Treasury have driven major policies like policy on Afghanistan, the fight against ISIS, alliance relationships. And it looks to me like President Trump is feeling increasingly confident in his command of the portfolio, and he wants a team that better reflects the policies that he campaigned on. You know, the one thing that I really notice about President Trump as a president is that he actually wants to carry out the policies he campaigned on. And by the way, voters like that. We bandy about this um, this title, National Security Advisor, all the time. But what is the job? What's the National Security Advisor meant to do exactly? The National Security Advisor has three basic functions. First, as a self-explanatory, to advise the president on the major issues of the use of military force, diplomatic relations, economic policies, The second major responsibility of the National Security Advisor is to be the president's personal staff, right? The people who prepare him for meetings with foreign leaders, who uh, write the briefing papers for when he's meeting with the military leadership. And the third major responsibility of the National Security Advisor is 
organizing the interagency process, the different departments of the American government, what they can contribute, making sure policy ideas have been vetted with the other members of the cabinet so that you draw out both concerns about potential approaches, but then also a fixed responsibility for implementation of those policies. Which makes the advisor incredibly powerful, doesn't it? Absolutely. The job when done well is incredibly powerful. And I guess the one thing I would say in support of John Bolton's appointment is that the National Security Advisor does their job best when they are in close sync with the president's own preferences about what needs to be done and how to do it. So if you think about the perfect model, it was Brent Scowcroft and George H.W. Bush, where they were symbiotic and Scowcroft worked to bring the rest of the government around to the president's views. He ensured effective implementation of those views. He was an incredibly powerful spokesman for those views. And he also could quietly, privately shape how the president was approaching problems. Is John Bolton, though, a consensus builder? (laughs) I have seen no evidence that John Bolton is a consensus builder. But maybe he has untapped talents that this job will bring out. This is likely to be a very bumpy ride. I think people tend to believe that a presidency smooths out over time. And I don't think that's likely to happen in the Trump administration. I think it's going to be just as chaotic the whole way through. Corey uh, Shackey, who served in President George W. Bush's uh, National Security Council. Uh, Let's uh, finish the programme by returning to our top story, what's been happening in France over the past couple of hours. French police have shot dead an Islamist gunman who took hostages at a supermarket in the southwest town of Trèbes. Uh, The French interior minister, Gérard Collomb, has been to Trèbes. Uh, Here's how he described events. He went into the supermarket and fired and killed two people. At that moment, immediately, the gendarmerie intervened and organised the escape of the people who were there. The gendarme lieutenant colonel, who was with those men, voluntarily swapped himself for a hostage that the terrorist then let go. And he stayed with him. The terrorist fired and the police force intervened and brought down the terrorist. The French interior minister there. Well, to pick up the story, here's our Paris correspondent, Hugh Schofield. Three different attacks, separate attacks on, in this spree, basically, by a young man aged 26 who he named as Radwan Lagdim, a man of Moroccan origin. There were three incidents, one after the other. The first was the carjacking, a carjacking in which he seized the car uh, with using his gun and shot the occupants of the car, one of whom was injured and one of whom was killed. The passenger, I think, was killed. That was the first incident. In the car, then, he drives and follows a group of four policemen, uh, members of the CRS riot uh, police who are out jogging and he shoots one of them in the shoulder. Seriously injures him but he's not in any life-threatening situation. The man then drives uh, a few miles away from Carcassonne, which is where all this has happened so far, to Trebe um, where he parks the car in the car park of the supermarket, Superu supermarket, and uh, and, and charges in, firing his gun 
um, and shouting, apparently, I am a soldier of Daesh, that so-called Islamic State. Um, there's a, there are scenes of panic, of course. Two people are killed, but most people manage to escape. And now here's an intriguing detail left by Gerard Colomb, the uh, interior minister. He said that a lieutenant colonel, a lieutenant colonel of the gendarmerie, who were there very quickly at the scene and who he praised as a body for intervening so rapidly, a lieutenant colonel from the gendarme of Carcassonne volunteered to take the place of a hostage in order to be... Um, stay near the uh, hostage taker, the gunman, and to let the others out. He described this man, who he named, but I, I didn't catch his name, as a, a real hero. Um, this gendarme left his mobile phone on in the room, the supermarket, where he was alone then with the gunman. And according to what Gerard Colomb said, it was when uh, the authorities outside, the special forces outside, heard gunfire being fired on via this mobile phone when they heard the sound of gunshots on it that they intervened and came in and killed him. It's unclear to me whether the noise of that gunshot was uh, of, of the gunman shooting at the, uh, the gendarme lieutenant colonel who's inside. That's not clear, but uh, it, it does seem that the lieutenant colonel was injured, uh, is alive but was injured, and in this melee uh, the, the, the gunman was killed. Hugh Schofield, uh, one other detail. Uh, the French government saying that the attacker was a 26-year-old with a record of drugs and petty crime, but who was not thought to be uh, radicalised. Uh, the Reuters news agency reporting that so-called Islamic State has claimed responsibility for the attack in a statement, uh, but has given no evidence for the claim. Uh, continuing coverage here on the BBC of that story and uh, all our other stories, also on our website, bbc.com forward slash news. That, though, is it for this edition of NewsHour. Thanks for listening. Until the next time, bye-bye. NewsHour has been a download from the BBC. To discover more and our terms of use, visit bbc.com slash podcasts.